I'll be reading Luke chapter 13, 1 to 9. Luke 13, 1 to 9. But I'll be focusing on my message on verses 1 to 5, and then next week, Lord willing, on verses 6 to 9. Uh, Luke chapter 13, 1 to 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. He told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. He said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of our Lord. May he add its blessing to our hearts for our sanctification and for his glory this morning. You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Holy God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, Lord, we see the need to repent. Lord, we see the need to repent before You, for You are the Holy God. You are holy and we are not. And we thank You, Father, that that repentance is a gift of Your Holy Spirit that You grant to Your elect. Lord, as you have granted us repentance unto life. And Lord, we praise you that you are continually granting us repentance as you are revealing your sin to us, convicting us of sin and and helping us to turn from sin and to follow you. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to do that. We pray that you would shine the light of the Holy Spirit in our hearts according to your word this morning. We pray that you would grant us all repentance. Lord, we pray that that would be true, Lord, for any who are listening or are here as unregenerate, as unbelievers. We pray that you would grant them repentance unto life. And, and if there are any of us who are, are truly regenerate, who are born again, but, but are walking in the hardness of our hearts for our sin, we, we pray that you would expose that and grant us repentance for that too. May you help us, Lord, to continue to see your holiness, to see our need to be holy for you are holy to see that you have set us apart to to love and to worship and to serve you so lord help us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance for your glory for our good and for the building of your church we ask this in jesus name amen Jeffrey Chaucer's 
Canterbury Tales was written in the 14th century. It was one of the first books published in Middle English. In the Pardoner's Tale, Chaucer tells of three young drunkards drinking in the tavern one morning. They hear a death bell ringing as a casket is carried through the town. They discover that the dead man in the casket was in fact one of their friends. And so the three of them conspire and resolve to assail and to kill death. Determining that with the advantage of three to one, he will not be able to withstand them. And so they set out on the road and soon meet an old man dressed in a black and tattered robe. And the man blesses them saying, Peace and God be with you. But they mock him, calling him an old fool and suggesting, Why live so long? Isn't it time to die? The old man warns them that they should have reverence for age and that they will have a different perspective if they live long enough. Nevertheless, he tells them that he is an associate of death and that he tells them where they can find death. He says to them, death is not far away, just over the next hill in the valley, in the roots of an old oak tree. And so the three men rush ahead. They find the oak tree and at the base of this old gnarled tree, they find a pile of gold coins. Now they quickly leave off their pursuit of death and are now in pursuit of this treasure. And so they do not want to carry the the gold back during daylight. And so they send the youngest one among them back to town to get bread and wine so that they can spend the day merrily before waiting for while they wait for nightfall so they can bring the gold back to their homes in the cover of darkness. But while he's gone, the two who are left behind plot to fall upon him and to stab him to death. And to keep the money just between the two of them. But unbeknownst to them, the third young man, the prospective victim of their plot, devises a plot of his own. He wants the gold for himself. So he purchases poison. And he puts it in two bottles of wine to give to his friends, keeping a third clean for himself. This is how the section ends. Why make a sermon of it? Why waste breath? Exactly in the same way they'd planned his death. They fell on him and slew him two to one. Then said the first of them when it was done, Now for a drink, sit down and let's be merry, for later on there will be a corpse to bury. As it happened, reaching for a sup, he took a bottle full of poison up and drank, and his companion nothing law, drank from it also, and they perished both. There is in Avicenna's long relation concerning poison and its operation. Trust me, no ghastlier section to transcend what these two wretches suffered at their end. Thus, thus these two murderers received their due. So did the treacherous young poisoner too. O cursed sin, O black godly excess, O treacherous homicide, O wickedness, O gluttony that lusted on and diced, O blasphemy that took the name of Christ with habit-hardened oaths, that pride began. And how comes it that mortal man, that thou to thy creator, him that wrought thee, that paid his precious blood for thee and bought thee, art so unnatural and false within. Dearly beloved God, forgive your sin and keep you from the vice of avarice. And my holy pardon frees you all of this, provided that you make the right approaches that is sterling 
or rings or silver brooches. Friends, do not go boldly looking for death, or you are sure to find it. Don't think that in all of your self-righteous pride you could ever think to stand against death. Death holds a strange attraction and repulsion for people. On the one hand, many are, are drawn to movies and to books and video games that graphically, graphically depict death. There's a huge part of the entertainment industry that, that sensationalizes death, graphically depicting all of the gory details. You cannot see how such things glorify Christ. But even for people that aren't drawn to this, many are curious about the details of natural disasters and conflicts and so on that are presented in the news. And so somehow these things horrify us, but also capture our attention. Death repulses us, but we want to find out about death. We're quick to spread the news about death. We're bombarded daily with with death tolls of COVID-19. But ironically, the same people who are are telling us the COVID-19 death tolls will never give us the abortion death toll. Approximately 22,000 so far in Canada just this year. Over 9 million worldwide. It is horrific. We need to know this. We need to tell others. We need to take it to the Lord. This is important information. Likewise, we need to pray for our brothers and sisters who are dying for their faith. We need to take it to the Lord. In our passage this morning, we find people who want to tell Jesus about some horrifying deaths. That a group of worshipers were killed by Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem as they were in the very act of of making sacrifices. Their own lives were sacrificed alongside their sacrifices and their own blood mixed with the blood of their offering. So why did these people come to Jesus to tell him this? What brought it up in their hearts? Were they were they heartbroken? Were they responding to what Jesus had just said about judgment? What did they want Jesus to do? Did they, did they want Jesus to do something about it? Did they want Jesus to make some pronouncement against the Romans for this crime? Well, their motives will be clear, but at this point, Jesus does neither. At least not right now. He will deal with every injustice, but he will do so on his terms, in his way, according to his timetable. And Jesus uses this event and this moment as an opportunity to drive home what he's been teaching ever since the beginning of chapter 12, the necessity of responding rightly to God through faith in Him, because of coming judgment. Now it's really too bad that there's a chapter break here at the beginning of chapter 13 because because this passage really goes with chapter 12. This passage is really the climax of, of this message that Jesus has been teaching since the beginning of chapter 12. That death and judgment may come suddenly or may be delayed, but it will come. So these people are directly confronted with the warning, repent or perish. The verses 1 to 5, we see that death comes suddenly. It's going to focus on this morning. And then 
Next week, Lord willing, verses 6 to 9, where death is delayed. So first of all, verses 1 to 5, death comes suddenly. As chapter 13 begins, again, some from the crowd tell Jesus about this group of, of Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This is the first mention of Pontius Pilate since Luke 3, where he was described as the Roman, Roman governor of Judea. This was at the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, just before, at the beginning during the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, Pilate will play a much more prominent role in Luke's gospel account soon enough. But when it comes specifically to this event, this, this mingling of the blood of these Galileans at the time of the sacrifice, there, there's, there is no other source that, that tells us directly of this taking place. But it does fit Pontius Pilate's modus operandi. The Jewish historian Josephus reports of another event that's going to take place soon after the events of Luke 13. We're just prior to the triumphal entry when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, when Pilate had enraged the Jews by taking money from the tre temple treasury to build an aqueduct, the people rioted. Josephus reports that tens of thousands of Jews revolted and Pilate ordered the soldiers to crush the rebellion, and they did, violently, killing a great number of unarmed Jews. But here, in this moment, even worse than in that rebellion, these Galileans were killed in the very act of worship. It's horrifying. The humanity of it should have been horrifying enough for, for these Jews who were telling Jesus about it, that they were, that they were cut down in the process of practicing religion. Well, we can relate. Every week we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are dying for their faith, the same religion that we hold to. What is your response to such things? When you hear about the, the persecution of our brothers and sisters, how do you respond? Do you does it wrench your heart? Do you weep with those who weep? Romans 12, 15. Do you have compassion on them? Romans 10, 34. Or do you quickly forget about it and move on? How often do your persecuted brothers and sisters make your prayer list? The response of these Jews who informed Jesus about the death of their brothers was even worse. Even worse than forgetting. Jesus' answer in verses 2 to 5 reveals the reality of their motives and the reality of their guilt. Jesus answers them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Well, first, they lacked compassion on their fe fellow countrymen as their fellow Jews. In John Donne's poem, For Whom the Bell Tolls, we read, no man is an island entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, or as well as if a manner of thine own, or of thine friends were. Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore, do not send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. The death of a human being should evoke a visceral response in you. When another human being who's made in God's image dies, it should deeply trouble you. Especially if the person is a brother or sister in Christ. And even more so if, if, if he or she dies unjustly and horribly. 
I really would encourage you to read Fox's Book of Martyrs to, to get a perspective on these things, on, on persecution, and to prepare your heart for persecution. But these Jews, again, they, they lacked compassion on their fellow countrymen, on their fellow human beings. But that wasn't all they did. Again, they did something much worse. You can see from Jesus' response that they concluded that these Galileans died because of sin in their lives. They concluded that the Galileans being killed in this way was God's judgment against them. Now this is a very, very dangerous game. Judging others and concluding that what happens to them is God's judgment against them. Job's counselors did it and earned a stiff rebuke from God. The disciples did it with a man born blind in, in John 9 and were corrected by Jesus. When they asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, judgment can come immediately and directly on sin. You see this in, in uh, Deuteronomy 28 to 30, where you see the, the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. In the, in the Old Covenant, there, there was a direct correlation. And we can see this practically even, even today at, at times. If you know of somebody who was, was killed by drinking and driving, while well, drinking and driving. Or if a, a sexually immoral person contracts HIV AIDS, well, the consequence is, is directly tied to their sin. But be very wary of concluding that this is the case necessarily for ourselves, let alone anyone else. Be very wary of concluding that trials and even death come into our lives or the lives of others as a direct punishment for sin. The reality is that many people, many people who engage in such behavior don't die from it. And many people who do engage in such behavior don't. Again, be very, very careful not to judge by appearance, but to judge with righteous judgment. Romans 7.24, judge with biblical judgment. You need to cultivate a robust biblical theology of suffering. Again, yes, God does sometimes strike people down in their sin, as he did with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, as he does with those who took the Lord's Supper without examining themselves in 1 Corinthians 11. But we must be very, very careful about making such judgments ourselves. We know that the Lord does discipline those who he loves, Hebrews 12, 6, and uses such things as they work together for our good to make us more like Christ, Romans 8, 28 and 29. But remember that making pronouncements on others is not your private authority. Not even the elders have that authority. This is the authority of the local church. Jane was at a conference many years ago when the preacher dropped dead in the pulpit. It was obviously a traumatic event. I wonder what people were thinking as this preacher dropped dead in the act of delivering God's word. What would you think if I were to drop dead right now in this pulpit? Now, my desire is to 
get laid out on on the table that's usually here in a coffin one day after many years of ministry. Hopefully not today. My dropping dead in the pulpit would, would obviously be traumatic, especially for Jane. Not just because she's seen it before. But don't be like those Jews. If that or something like that were to happen, don't conclude that I somehow deserved it unless I was perhaps in the, in the process of, of preaching heresy. Now, heresy is no joke, but if, if God struck preachers dead for false teaching, well, there are quite a number of popular teachers who would not be around today. Many people die who we think deserve to live. And many people live who we think deserve to die. So Jesus asked the question, were these Galileans worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Jesus' simple answer is no. These Galileans were not worth worse sinners. They were not more deserving of death than all the other Galileans. And by logical extension, they were not worse sinners, more deserving of death than all the other Jews, even these Jews who are at this moment talking to Jesus. But these Jews had concluded that because that tragedy had not fallen on them, that they were somehow blessed with God's favor. In other words, they felt that that others might be deserving of God's judgment, but not us. The deaths of these Galileans revealed a, a wrong view of God's judgment and a wrong view of their own righteousness. The reality is they deserved to die. The reality is we all deserve to die. Notice that Jesus uses the word all in verses 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. We all deserve to die. Jesus brings down this verdict in verse 3. He says, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is directed personally at them. He's saying, you must repent or perish. Jesus says to these men, don't focus on the supposed sins of others. Focus on your own. Judge yourself biblically, and then you will see clearly to judge others judiciously and mercifully. Remember Luke 6, verses 41 and 42, that you have to take the log out of your own eye before you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. These Jews have a false sense of self-righteousness that leads to a false sense of security. They too will die. All will die. Now these Galileans that Pilate had killed died suddenly. And Jesus is saying to them, unless you repent, you may die suddenly too. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish, dead in your trespasses and sins. Now death might come quickly, or death might be delayed, but death will come. The important thing is not when you die, but that you will die. That Jesus is offering mercy. Jesus is offering the mercy. The, the mood of the verb that's communicated in the original language suggests that, that this is a possibility, that this is an invitation for them to repent. 
that the way of life is, is open before them should they, by God's grace, choose to take it. But it's not just those Jews who are guilty, is it? Romans 3 tells us that guilty is the verdict on the whole human race. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 23. Again, this is not just an indictment on those Jews. This is an indictment on you. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. It's an indictment. But it's also an invitation. You must repent and believe the gospel. As Peter said in his Pentecost sermon, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, being a Christian is not just a matter of going to church. Being a Christian is not just about having right doctrine. Being a Christian is not just a matter of being nice. Being a Christian is not just about doing good deeds. Being a Christian is not just about reforming your life. Being a Christian is about repentance and faith. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change in behavior. I'll describe it more fully in a moment. In verse 5, Jesus refers to another incident. Commonly known in that era, but also otherwise unrecorded, unrecorded so far as we know. It's only here in Luke's Gospel account. Eighteen people were killed when the tower in Siloam fell. The pool of Siloam was a water reservoir for Jerusalem on the southeast corner of the city. And apparently the tower, part of the tower, collapsed, tragically killing 18 people. Now, whereas the death of the Galileans was at the hand of Pilate, this event was not man-made. It was, as your insurance forms would describe, an act of God. But now we know that, that God is sovereign over all things, yet not the author of sin. James 1.13 So in both incidents, there is God's hand is there. As Jonathan Edwards teaches, God may hate a thing as it is in itself, and considered simply evil, yet it may be His will that it should come to pass, considering all consequences. God doesn't will sin as sin for the sake of anything evil. Though it be his pleasure to so order things that he is permitting, sin will come to pass for the sake of the great good that by his disposal shall be the consequence. So in other words, God permits things to take place that are against his moral will because of the greater good that they will accomplish. God decrees things in such a way that it does not do violence to the moral agency of the individual. God is sovereign and man is responsible. Te scripture teaches both and so we believe both. God refrains from acting in certain circumstances and situations in order to accomplish things that are for his ultimate will and for his glory. And friends, you and I know that the greatest example of this is the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, that this was the plan of God's covenant of redemption made between the Father and the Son in eternity past and lived out in the incarnation of Christ and his crucifixion at the hands of sinful men. Listen to another part of Peter's Pentecost sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, 
as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of men. You see it there, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The reality is that we cannot know specifically why these 18 people died at Siloam. It's part of the mystery of God's providence. But the important thing for these Jews to make note of is not why they died, but that they died. Jesus' message again is, unless you repent, you will die too. In verse 5, Jesus repeats what he said in verse 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise, re- you will all likewise perish. This repetition, remember the scriptures, when, when Jesus repeated, repeats something, it's like an exclamation mark. And our English Bibles don't, don't pick up on this, but in the original, the, the statement and call to repentance is even more emphatic the second time Jesus says it. So again, the call is to repent. Again, it is, it's a, a basic a basic definition of repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. If you want to know more about repentance, and I pray you do, the single best book that I know of about repentance is Thomas Watson's The Doctrine of Repentance. We talk about it here quite a bit. Watson outlines six ingredients of true repentance. One, sight for sin. You see your lifestyle as sinful. Two, sorrow for sin. You feel the pain of your sin, especially the fact that your sin necessitated the crucifixion of Christ. Three, confession of sin. You pass judgment on yourself and admit the guilt of specific sins in your heart to God. Four, shame for sin. You feel shame for what you have done. You feel naked and exposed before the Holy God. Five, hatred of sin. You hate your sin to the core. You love Jesus more fully, so you hate sin more deeply. And then six, turning away from sin and turning to the Lord with all your heart. You turn away from your rebellion against God and turn to God in faith and worship. The repentant person will strive in the strength that God provides to put off sinful behavior and to put on righteous behavior. This is the fruit that's in keeping with repentance that John the Baptist called for in Luke 3.8. It's the fruit that was absent in the tree in verses 6 to 9 that we'll talk about next week. The Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11. For godly grief produces repentance, leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In verse 11, this fruit of repentance. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So there is fruit in keeping with repentance. Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The fruit of repentance. So repentance is a one-time event that as you come to saving faith. However, repentance is also a daily practice as you walk regularly in repentance. Without repentance, there is no spiritual life. Without repentance, you will perish. And Jesus is not speaking here of physical death. He's speaking of spiritual death. Without repentance, you will die the second death. 
the lake of fire that is spoken of repeatedly in the book of Revelation. In Psalm 7, verses 11 to 16, we read that God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He is bent and readied his bow. He's prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Like those three drunkards from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. God's sword hangs over the head of the unrepentant sinner, and it is only God's mercy that keeps it from plunging into the heart. As we'll see next week, one day God's mercy will come to an end. One day God's one day you will die and God's bill will be due. You will die. Are you going to die in your sins? Or are you going to die having repented of your sins? Are you walking in repentance today? I often think of the Puritans. They, they were, were often called repenters. Philip Henry, the son of Matthew Henry, once said, some people do not like to hear much about repentance. But I think it is so necessary that if I should die in the pulpit, I wish to die preaching about repentance. And if I should die out of the pulpit, I wish to die practicing it. If I die in the pulpit, may I die preaching about repentance. And if I die out of the pulpit, may I die practicing repentance. And may the same be true for you. I remember so clearly reading Thomas Watson's Doctrine of Repentance when I was in seminary. And as I read what Watson wrote, I concluded that my repentance isn't good enough. I was right. It isn't good enough. It isn't good enough. I'm thankful I'm not saved on the basis of perfect repentance, but on the basis of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And so I went to God in repentance and asked for forgiveness and asked for Him to grant me repentance. That is a prayer that God is going to answer. If you ask God to give you repentance because it is His will will for you as well, God is faithful and He will grant you repentance. My repentance isn't good enough. Your repentance isn't good enough. But is it evident? Are you a repenter? No, not perfectly, but are you a repenter? Likewise, your faith isn't good enough, but is it evident? Are you turning away from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ? Is your faith truly on Him? As Jesus preached this message in Luke 13, He was on the road to Jerusalem where He would be crucified and killed. The blood of another who was called a Galilean would be spilled by Pontius Pilate. And the crowds would conclude that he too was a sinner deserving of God's judgment. And Jesus would experience God's judgment. But not for his sin. He would experience God's judgment for our sins, for yours and mine. Yet, Jesus Christ would be raised on the third day for our justification. And so turn to Jesus Christ 
in repentance and faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your perfect life. As you perfectly obeyed all of the law of God. Lord Jesus, as you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, we praise you that in you we can have life. And as we turn away from our sins and put our faith in you, that all of your righteousness is credited to our account. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that even though you were sinless, you died as the sin bearer for our sins, not yours, for you had none. Likewise, so then, Lord, when we turn to you in repentance and faith, that that all of our sin is credited to your account. As you paid the debt that we owe but could never, ever pay off. And so, Lord Jesus, through the power of your Spirit, I pray that you would grant us repentance. And whether that be true for, for the unbeliever who's listening for the first time, may they, may they turn away from their sin. May they turn to you in repentance and faith. But Lord, for all of us, help us to be repenters. We ask this all for Christ's sake. Amen.